how do you prepare to become a physician? How do you prepare to apply to medical school? Our guest has written the book on the topic after two decades in medical school admissions. Join me for this fascinating conversation. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 420th episode of Admissions Trite Talk. Thanks for joining me today. Will you be ready to apply to your dream medical schools when MCAS opens in the spring? Will you be competitive at your target programs? Accepted's Med School Admissions Calculator can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash medquiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but tips on how to improve your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, use the calculator at accepted.com slash medquiz to obtain your free assessment. Today's guest, Dr. Sunny Nakai, is a Senior Associate Dean for Equity, Inclusion, Diversity, and Community Partnerships at the California University of Science and Medicine School of Medicine, one of the country's newer medical schools. Dr. Nakai earned her bachelor's and MSW from the University of Utah, and then her PhD in higher ed at Loyola University of Chicago. She started working in medical school admissions in 2006 as Director of Diversity at Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine moved to Loyola Stritch for six years as assistant dean for admissions, recruitment, and student life, and then another two years at UC Riverside, again as associate dean, and then last year joined CUSM as senior associate dean, equity, inclusion, diversity, and community partnerships. All that experience is reason enough to invite her to Admissions Straight Talk. However, I also want to discuss her fantastic book, Pre-Med Prep, Advice from a Medical School Admissions Dean. Dr. Nakai, welcome to Admissions Straight Talk. Thank you so much, Linda. Happy to be here. Now, let's first start, before we get to your book, let's talk a little bit about CUSM and the MD program there. Can you give us an overview of the CUSM MD program, focusing on its more distinctive elements? Sure. California University of Science and Medicine School of Medicine is a community-based medical school. So if if students are paying attention, that means that we are really focused on um, training at a lot of different sites. We're focused on primary care. Our main affiliation is Arrowhead Regional, um, but we also have um, sites at St. Bernardine's, other places. We're in inland Southern California, so about 90 minutes, a little over, maybe a little under two hours from um, the coast. So um, it's a very underserved and economically divested region of California. So our, our goal is really to produce more physicians that want to, to train in our region and stay in our region and take care of people that live here. So we are focused on primary care. Like I said, we have early clinical experiences uh, where students are placed um, with preceptors and clinics, outpatient settings. So they get very comfortable with outpatient and preventive care and ongoing you know, clinical home type settings. And then another distinctive element that, that we're developing We've we've recently changed our service learning into something called change, which is students actually will have an, a similar placement with a community partner that they do on the clinical side through the care program. So care and change together are going to create this opportunity for students to actually learn about structural determinants of health and what our director calls health adjacent services. So it's a way for us to give back as a school, which is important to us. We want to make a departure from the typical pedagogical models that use 
a colonialist approach, right? We're going to come in and do what we want on our terms and demand certain things of you and impose our learning objectives on you and then go away. And then a new group of students is going to come and do the same thing, right? Who's, so, who's the you in this case? So the, the school, so the students are going to be doing it, right? So the students are going to be um, put into their, they're in college groups. And so right. they will be assigned to a community partner. Let's pretend like that's harm reduction um, in inland Southern California. So they're going to work with this community partner, a nonprofit organization, educational group. And it's really about what the community partner's goals are. So the student's job is to learn about what the community partner's goals are, what their strengths are, how they can actually leverage the talents and gifts they bring to the school as students to actually help our partners achieve their goals. So the learning is, is real learning. The contributions are real contributions. Um, and we're really hoping, it's what we call it change, right? It's not a service project. It's a contribution to change that is really directed, co-directed and led by our, our community partners. So we're hoping to have those folks come and lecture to our students, um, presenting them and their expertise, uh, community partners as experts uh, who can really teach us, uh, future physicians, how to navigate aspects of the community that can be really challenging, like housing insecurity, food insecurity, employment. Um, immigration challenges, mistreatment, Abuse. policing, conduct, yeah, all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm excited about it because I know students uh, crave very much to make a difference and go into medicine because they care deeply about community. And then they're totally disconnected from community and it's extracurricular in medical school. So we actually want to give back through our educational process by leveraging the strengths that our students have and the passion that they have as part of the curriculum. So everyone will do it um, and they'll do it in teams in their college groups and hopefully also be part of a leadership structure that will help us continue to maintain continuity for our community partners, lessening the burden on our community partners for onboarding us and teaching us, you know, how to be in their spaces. So if I have it straight, care is more about clinical exposure and change rather is more about non-clinical community services. Is is, is that a fair characterization or am I off? Yeah. No, the focus of it. So, so some of the change sites might have a like a like harm reduction, for example, as clinical elements to it, right? right? Sure. Like people exchange things like that, but it's not. They're not providing medical care. So, yeah. So, all the care sites are primary care sites, and then the change sites are health adjacent, and could be any number of things that contribute to um, structural determinants of health. Got it. Very interesting. And are the students still having this exposure, whether it's through change or care, despite COVID, or how how has COVID affected the non-didactic portions of, of the curriculum at CUSM? Yeah, so we've had to kind of change a little bit of for this year. And I, I joined CUSM in October of 2020. So the faculty had already done a lot of adaptation, yeah. um, you know, due to COVID. And so we're prospectively kind of revamping our service learning because a lot of it ended up being virtual. So we gave, you know, students kind of anti-racism, anti-oppression kind of reading lists. And did they want to do book clubs? And they've done programs. Some of our students have helped with vaccine rollouts and vaccine education and kind of trying to do outreach to think about improving community capacity to get people the care that they need. So we've had students kind of share those projects as part of it, as, as much as our post-COVID and post-vaccination world is, is allowing. But a lot of stuff was done more virtually this year than what we really would have preferred. The clinical skills, we ended up doing in small groups because it's pretty hard to teach those sort of remotely. Yeah. So, yeah. But we're hoping to really get back out there. And I know the students are, are quite eager to continue their clinical outreach and, you know, street medicine and, you know, other aspects that they do um, in our county. Great. Now let's turn to the application for CUSM. Are your secondaries screened in any way before they're sent out or are they automatically sent out? 
I don't think our secondaries are screened. And I was trying to look at the answer to this. I think it's in the MSAR, but I'm pretty sure that we send them to verified applicants because we get so many applications. Yeah, I, we got, I think, 2,000 our first year. We've just recruited our fourth class. So the class of 2025 is our fourth class. So we're now at a full complement. So you graduate your first class next year, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. great. Next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we, we went from getting, you know, a couple thousand applications. This year, we're well over 6,000 applications. Okay. What do you hope to learn from the secondary that you don't learn in the primary? So one of the things that we are adding for the coming year um, as part of my role, you know, is a, in equity, inclusion, diversity is synchronizing and implementing equity practice across faculty, staff, and student areas. So we have some equity practice and anti-racism questions that will be on our applications to join as staff that are in our faculty search processes and that are also going to be on our secondary. So we're interested in a person's previous experience and or openness or willingness to learn about life experiences, identities, and challenges that have been different from their own. And we do really want to assess a person's um, like I said, openness and willingness to engage in that learning because we are we have a goal to to be and to continually strive to be an anti-racist institution. And that requires universal engagement in equity practice. So hopefully students will um, take the opportunity to share with us uh, in those questions that will be added to our supplemental for the coming admission cycle. Our master's in biomedical sciences program, which is like our post-bac program, um, also has the questions. And they're the same, but, you know, versions of the same and the rubric is the same across all, all of those constituencies. Because I think in a professional school, everyone can be held, you know, accountable and sort of respond to how, how are they doing these things and how do they think about uh, this in their professional journey. How would you address concerns that CUSM is a new program? Obviously, we said that the, just a second ago, the first graduating class is next year. Congratulations. And so far has only preliminary LCME accreditation. This actually came up uh, on our staff. Yeah, it's a good question. So there's different phases of accreditation for the Liaison Committee for Medical Education, the LCME. And so you sort of apply and say, hey, we're thinking about becoming a school. And they say, okay, we're going to allow you to submit an application or not. And then you submit your application to become a school and you get provisional accreditation, which means, okay, we're going to let you actually submit the full docket of things. And you're not actually allowed to recruit or do anything. You're allowed to tell everyone, hey, we're starting a school, but you can't do anything else. So once you actually pass your provisional accreditation, you get preliminary accreditation, which is what we have. And the LCME comes back much more frequently in your early phases of developing a school to check on your policies. But there's a lot of aspects that they can't do a final review on until you have a graduating class, right? So how did you do and what are your training? And so we have these continual processes. I feel like we meet um, every week. Um, We have a a dean that's over compliance and accreditation, um, Dr. Secchi, and he's amazing and really kind of galvanizes all of us around this planning. So we are uh, accredited. Um, we're allowed to recruit, graduate, you know, train students. Even if something went wrong with our accreditation, students who are at the school will, will be considered graduates, and then it would be sort of moving forward. We wouldn't be able to, you know, admit allow admit more students. Yeah. So yeah. I've been part of several site visits for LCME. I have a sort of either good luck or bad luck, I guess. I, I landed at a school when I was at Utah. We did accreditation visit. I was at Northwestern for eight years. 
I caught the front end and the back end because it's oh, gosh. <laughs> literally like wreck, walked into accreditation and then had to do it again right before I left. And then Loyola actually did accreditation while I was there. Oh, and you are cars in the middle. Of well, you're very experienced. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I, was like, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but I keep landing in places where accreditation <laughs> is like on the table. So, um, so yeah, I be, having been part of our discussions now for the last um, six months, I'm confident in our ability to meet the, the requirements. And I think that we're, you know, we're doing an exceptional job and really trying to innovate and do, and do things differently, right? And that's what I love about CSM. It's why I chose to join is there's such an openness to new ideas and such an openness and willingness to improve. And we've started a lot of equity practice and engagement around equity, inclusion, and diversity. And uh, it's been great, you know, to work with our community and, and have it, you know, sort of be part of, of what we're trying to shift and, and shape an inclusive culture. Okay, great. Let's get back to the application process. Of course, right now we're it's it's May now. As Dr. Nakai and I are speaking, though the the actual interview will air in a few weeks. Some people have accepted offers. Some people have outstanding offers. You have a wait list. You're presumably drawing from your wait list. How do you view letters of intent or correspondence from waitlisted applicants? Um, I would think positively. I mean, I'm not the admissions dean at CUSM, but I know I've been involved in admissions at a lot of schools. And I don't think it ever hurts. And I say this in my book. I don't think it ever hurts to advocate for yourself, right? To professionally let people know sort of where you are. We don't know anything. And so if we have silence, we might assume you're really interested or not. The longer the season goes past the, the drop date, April 30th drop date, the more certainty admissions deans want that if they reach out to an applicant and make an offer that that applicant will accept because we are always eager to fill our classes and to get our, our classes seated. So um, letting people know, hey, I'm still interested or I have another offer, but you're still my number one choice. I'm holding out. You know, these it's helpful. And just providing a small update about these were my grades from last semester or I've continued to work in such and such community organization or I'm working on a manuscript, you know, just small little snippets of sort of what you've been doing is, is helpful, I think. And it, it can't hurt, you know, unless you do like one of my applicants at Stritch one year and like literally sent an email every day and finally yeah, have to like help them recognize, okay, you might be thinking that this is you being really persistent, but actually we get, you know, hundreds of emails a day and this is outside of the bounds of, of professional behavior. And I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. And I was like, Good to have this chat. Good that we had this chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you can have lots of stories of um, maybe not just from the wait list where applicants just don't quite get what is required of a professional. Yes. And, you know, I, I have, you know, as you know, I have a chapter on professionalism in my book because I really was like, we need to be much more explicit about this. And, you know, I love uh, you millennials, Gen Z, Gen Y, I generate, like, I love working with students. You probably can tell from do, just how yeah. I write about them. You're right. And I, I do think that we need to be more explicit in this whole, like, well, you should know better. And it's like, but people's learning modalities socially are really different than they used to be. Right. And so yeah. we have to, I take that into consideration and kind of get outside of our, our own head sometimes. And so I wanted to present a little bit about this is how we see you when this happens, right? When you bring your mom to interview day, we kind of scratch our heads a little bit. Like, and these are, these are just sort of things that if we can't add it up, we tend to sort of go away from it. But versus things that we understand or interpret, we tend to be much more in favor of. And that's just sort of how, you know, the nature of bias and, and how it all works. But I thought it would be helpful. Originally, my title for the book was like behind the admissions office door. Like I wanted to sort of peel back that curtain 
um, and help applicants understand how their behaviors are interpreted and how they're going to be viewed. The mom coming to interview day, maybe the mother should have a better understanding about professionalism also. Yeah, and, but you know, but not every parent gets that professional context, you know, and we didn't right. know if they'd like driven together and there just wasn't anywhere else for them to sit. I mean, they could have hung out in any number of public waiting areas in the hospital, sort of away from like right outside our door all day. I mean, one of my staff was like, maybe they're in the witness protection program. Maybe get a coffee. Really you know? <laughs> my staff was like, do you want lunch? Like, I mean, it was just, you know, because Loyola, we're such a warm place. It's such a hospitable place. And it, it was just so odd. And we just wondered like, how's this person going to do, you know, like interview yeah. day for a professional program. It's just really a, a strange practice. So. Of course, COVID has affected lots of things in the admissions process. And one of the things that I think it most affected was interviews. I think all medical schools are having virtual interviews this year. Next year, public health policies permitting, do you plan to go back to in-person interviews or do you plan to stick with the um, virtual ones? I don't know what our committee is going to do. You know, I, there's a lot that I like about the, the online interviewing. I think it just goes to show you that, you know, medical education is just so slow to change. There are certain ideas that are sacrosanct that we just cannot let go of. And people were so vehemently like, you need to like get a feel for the person. And you can't do that over interview. Because there's been times where I've had people like halfway across the world that just couldn't make it to their interview day. And I just, and there's also applicants who don't apply to as many places or turn down interviews because they can't afford to go. Yeah. Or aren't able to go as early in the season as they should because they don't have the money, right? So there's a lot of equity implications to how we do this. And almost every dean I ever talked to, and committee members too, were like, "No, we we want to lay eyes on this person. We want to, you know, be in their physical presence." And COVID came, and everyone was like, "Okay, we figured it out." And then we were all forced to do it. And all of a sudden, we're like, "Hmm, it's actually not that bad." And there's aspects of it that we like. And I don't think we're always going to be only selecting people this way, but there might be revisit or there might, you know, there might be other modalities. I know a lot of deans are really concerned about what offering both because we sort of feel like one or the other is a more fair application of how to do it, right? Like you might have a bias built in about, well, this person was really invested. So they showed up in person kind of thing. Uh, but I hope a lot of schools uh, do keep the virtual interviews because I think, well, while they introduce different kinds of bias, the socioeconomic burden of interviewing is, is, is that it can be thousands for some applicants, yeah. depending on um, where they live and how they travel. Right. No, it's true. It's, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out over time. Now, I'd like to turn to your book, Pre-Med Prep, Advice from Medical School Admissions Dean. One of the things that you wrote, which I thought was, was a fascinating comment, and it was in the, early in the book, was you wrote, my goal with this book is to shift the paradigm from, quote, what do I need to do to get into medical school? Close quote to what kind of person do I need to be in order to become a physician? Why is this shift necessary? Oh, that's the crux of, you Your know, book. yeah. I mean, it's just, I work with students and there is such a worry about how am I going to stack up, right? right. Like, how right. is my resume and all these elements and experiences of certain types and likes and kind going to be? And there's just this element of competition that really undermines joy, but also authenticity. Because people are like, oh, well, you're doing Relay for Life. Though. I guess I better do Relay. Oh, you joined the Art Society. I guess I better. And, like, and people feel this benchmarking of themselves with each other when none of that really matters when you're face to face with a patient in one of their most vulnerable moments. 
that's about knowing who you are and why you wanted to be sitting there, why you wanted to be the surgeon at the helm, why you wanted to be the hospitalist who's managing difficult cases or a pediatrician, you know, counseling a parent and child. Like it's really a, a journey of, of transformation. And the students that I witnessed that did it well, that were the best applicants had at their core who they were and their reasons and purpose that really shone through. And I really started to notice that it wasn't necessarily all of the accolades. It was what those accolades and the journey meant to the student. And then watching them, you know, I had the benefit of working with students in the pipeline, but also working with them after they got to medical school, because I was either the director of diversity or the student life dean. And so I got to watch how and whether applicants really thrived. And there were students who did the checklist and got in. Um, And they were less happy about their experience and their professional journey, more disillusioned at the end, more likely to say at the end, yeah, if I would have known all this, I wouldn't. Because it was almost like they got so caught up in whether they could get in and like get that gold star that they sort of missed the fact that you're signing up for a lifetime of vulnerability with patients and with yourself and this growth process. So um, I want to offer that reassurance too, that, that your life experiences and who you are as a person matters deeply to how successful you're going to be as a physician. And then when people hear that, I think they sort of relax a little bit because they go, okay, well, I didn't have a thousand hours of this or that, but I'm clear about XYZ values or this purpose or resolute in, you know, why I'm choosing this path for myself. I've had so many med student and resident guests on the show say that the, you know, ask them like, you know, what's your last piece of advice or whatever. Again and again and again, they'll say, I wish that when I was in college, I had followed my dreams more and worried about getting into medical school less. Yes. Over and over, it's like the most common refrain. And I think that gets in it from a somewhat different angle to the heart of what do I want to be? Who am I? As opposed to what do I have to do to get into medical school? I think it's, it's very much yeah. a, a very similar kind of message, again, from a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And that that exploration and that, I mean, you're much more likely to find something at the end of that whole process that you're happy with, right? Even in terms of like, if you still choose medicine, then what specialty you're going into. And it's really about knowing yourself and your, you know, professional identity formation. We don't talk about it as much, but it's really at the core of well-being too, right? So you, you choose this career and it's all about the competition of just getting there. And the satisfaction is really rooted in the purpose of, of why you're there in the first place. You right. know? So yeah, I, I agree with all those residents and physicians who've said, yeah, pay, pay attention to the things that bring you joy and, and really pursue those things. And there's ways to really incorporate that into your application and Absolutely. not have to shove yourself inside the checklist box. Yeah. Right. How would you address people who maybe they, they might have some low grades, they might have a low MCAT score, and they start feeling like, I'm an imposter, I don't, I don't deserve to be a physician? Imposter syndrome. Well, I think what makes imposter syndrome in medicine and science that much more difficult is we all sort of have it to a certain degree anyway, like have these moments where we're like, who am I to be doing this? You know, even I sometimes look at my book and go, I wrote a book. Like I never really thought that I would, right? And so I almost feel like medicine and science, because of their roots, they originate from very male, elite, dominant, white, cisgender, heteronormative like norms and cultures. And so it's almost like the, the subculture of those spaces is designed to tell you that you don't belong. 
right? It actually is not designed with you in mind in the first place. So imposter syndrome in those spaces can be like, it's amped, it's on, it's on steroids. So it's, it's normal, I would say, first of all, to, to feel like, oh, what, what am I doing here? Every person who's become a, a parent or taking on caregiving responsibilities for little humans asks themselves that all, what am I even doing? What, what, is, what is happening here, right? We all have those moments. So just normalizing, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a, a bad caregiver because you're questioning yourself. I think um, it's healthy to have some sort of reflection and to step back and that humility exactly. sometimes goes over into taking away confidence. And I saw that a lot with underrepresented students who'd experienced that, you know, they'd gone to really elite institutions. And I remember one interview I was in at Northwestern and a student came in and was like, you know, I'm really excited to be here. Da, da, da. I just want to apologize for my MCAT score. And I was like, hold on. And I just, and I was like, your MCAT score is like 85th percentile. What, why are you apologizing for your, well, I know the schools is like, you know, the average, I'm below the average for the school. And I, and I was like, okay, we're going to pause the interview for a second. Don't stop doing that. I was like, stop doing that. Like you're a great applicant. Just you stop. Yeah. Here if we didn't think you were, you know, yeah. so sometimes the things <laughs> we think matter and we're so hung up on them, like they don't matter to other people. You know, it's sort of once like you, um, once you got invited for the interview, it doesn't matter. Yeah, my, my kids, I don't know if you watch Shit's Creek, but my kids and I love the, the scene with David and Alexis where Alexis is sort of helping David step out of his anxiety of what everybody else thinks because he's so afraid he's going to fail at this driving test. And she's like, nobody cares, David. And so we say that in our house a lot. You know, I have middle school yeah. girls kids, yeah. and my son's 15. And so sometimes they'll be like, oh, this person, this, and it's like, nobody cares, David. Like, oh, what if I do this? And such and such. <laughs> nobody cares, David. Like, just you're in your own head with all that stuff, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Of course, that's very typical of teens too. And for someone like to get back to your question, for someone who doesn't feel like they've had perfection, I mean, perfection is not the goal, right? We don't okay. want people in medicine who are perfect at the expense of progress. In order to have innovation, in order to have those breakthroughs, we have to be willing to fail. And so sometimes the greatest character development and learnings come from when we fall short. And and I talk about like sort of the character development in my letter to applicants that don't get in and really wrote that like very firmly, but also lovingly to sort of help applicants understand that none of this is really guaranteed. And so who you are at the end of the day is what you're left with. Like when you try for something, like how do you behave when people aren't watching? What sorts of future do you hope and wish for for your friends? Like this is really what makes up who you are. So I I would always want to encourage those students. I've worked with students whose MCAS application undergraduate GPAs were below 2.0 because they have repeated so many courses. One of those students is today a resident in urology. So if you want it, we can make a plan. And for this physician, it was a five-year plan. And um, they came to me saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, apply to medical school. And I looked at their stuff and I said, okay, well, not yet. You are, but not yet. And let's figure out how to get some post-bac coursework under your belt. We need to improve your MCAT score. We need to get some research experiences. Like you're going to really have to overcome, you know, this record to even try and really get your foot in the door. So um, but it is possible. And um, I love, I, I just love that I know students that have, that have persevered and even in medical school practice, you know, connecting when students sometimes don't pass their boards on the first attempt. It's like, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world. Everything's crashing down. It's like, let me just connect you with like 10 other people who didn't pass their boards on the first attempt who are happy practicing physicians today. Like, you know, there's some perspective taking that um, we can do for each other in those moments. There's a, there's a difference between a bump in the road and the end of the road. Yes, absolutely. Right. What's your top advice for writing a personal statement on the primary application? 
I think make it interesting to read. I don't know. I spent a lot of time on personal statements. I bet um, you did. The whole, the whole impetus for the book like came from ranting. I, I write this in the introduction, but I'm like your friendly neighborhood admission dean, right? And a lot of my former students that are now like attending physicians are like, oh my God, the admissions team is back because I would put things in that people did as applicants or things I read that was like, and don't do this. And like, yeah. I never thought I'd be saying this, but don't do this. <laughs> Somebody winking at me in an interview, which was like the strangest thing. Oh, you know, I, the, the person listed that they played like six instruments on their AMCAS. And I was like, oh, talk to me about like playing instruments. Like how many you know instruments do you play? And so they listed them all. And then they're like, oh, but seven, if you count my voice. And I was like, <laughs> this has never happened to me before. Like, terrible. what is this? App? Right. It's so terrible. And then you go, maybe this person doesn't realize like what the social currency of winking is and how weird and off-putting and inappropriate that was. So then I have, you know, to write this story, de-identified story on Facebook and get all these comments. And so I wrote, I pasted in and kind of redacted and changed some details of this like stream of consciousness, terrible personal statement mess. Um, One was about like doing CPR on a goldfish and like how, because you know, she saved her gold. And I was, I was like, you guys, we just, we can't, this, this can't happen. So Alvin Landry, who's actually one of the co-founders of Tour for Diversity in, in Medicine with Dr. Cameron Matthews, they was like, okay, well, put your money where your mouth is, Dean Kai. Like, what should people write about? Like, you're yeah. constantly criticizing applicants. Like, why don't you tell us what they should? And I was like, you know what, Alvin, I will. So then I published that blog, um, Tough Love for Your Personal Statement um, from a medical school admissions dean. And it kind of, you know, as if for plain blogs on reflectivemeded.org, it still gets the most hits. My former chair, Dr. Koshevsko says, yep, your blog still gets the most hits because somehow it just really struck a nerve with people. And I talk about the use of reflection in a personal statement, the meaning making, the so what of your experiences that we want. And if, if somebody else could change a couple details and put it on Reddit and it could be their personal statement, then it's probably not done yet. You know, And, and if you don't have the depth of reflection about your experiences, then it's time to reflect on that. Why don't I? Why can't I derive meaning or purpose? Why am I having a hard time articulating what this journey means to me? Um, then we need to go back and fill in some connective tissue, you know, in a growth zone and sort of figure out why, why do I want to do this? Because that's a really important question to answer before you embark on $200,000 in loans and eight years of training. Right. Or what lesson did I learn from this experience? Yeah, yeah. that's great. Great uh, advice and great feedback. Regarding activity descriptions, you wrote in your book, this relates directly to what you just said, it is the meaning making and the personal gains from your experiences that truly create value, not the hours. The hours you cataloged likely will not compensate for gaps in reflection and depth in both initial and subsequent phases of the admissions process. How can they obtain meaningful clinical exposure today with COVID and the restrictions? Um, I think that's definitely... A, a challenge because most of our medical students for a good period of time got, you know, released from clinical sites because of the dangers of COVID. So I do think um, virtual shadowing can be helpful. And again, it's, you do have to work to think about and reflect on what am I seeing, right? Like the decision-making process or the background or how this provider interfaces with faculty, uh, other, other colleagues, ancillary staff members in, the, in a healthcare setting. Um, I'm part of, I got invited to be part of a student-run organization, Pre-Health Shadowing, which I really love the, the students that are working on the board to try and make this sort of worldwide free resource. And again, I mean, this is why I love Gen Z and the I generation, because 
they saw a problem and figured out how to create this global organization to solve it in like a couple of months, right? And I, I think yeah. that, yeah, they, I mean, meeting with them and I, I got this invitation and I was, albeit admittedly skeptical about this, you know, come and be on our board. And they went to the first meeting and it was so well organized and so well thought out. And really they had access and equity and, you know, those types of things at the top of the list for why they wanted to exist in the first place. And it was um, a very, very soulful and purposeful, you know, group of students. So um, I think reading books and listening to podcasts is a great way to expand your worldview and do some of that reflection. It is a, a form of like vicarious learning, right? You're not there in person, but you can listen to the stories. And that really does increase your bandwidth for understanding the role of a physician, how healthcare goes together. And there's a lot of podcasts by um, current physicians that are really accessible. Um, several of my former students actually do them. Wendy Goodall McDonald does one called Dr. Every Woman. She talks about women's health and all sorts of stuff. She does fun, like, parodies of pop songs to talk about women's health issues. You should have Wendy like on, on your podcast with it. Like she's, she's amazing. Dr. Goodall McDonald. And um, there's, there's one called um, chocolate medicine, which is like, I think four black women physicians and they all, they talk about different health topics and they're trying to make these things much more accessible and kind of integrating and bringing in unique aspects of black culture into medicine. Um, so there's just, there's a lot of, of listening and, and reading you can do. There's books about physician experiences. One that we had our students read years ago is called Attending Children. Um, the author is, is Mormon. And it just goes through like the medical student resident and then attending physician experience as a, as a pediatrician. Not a beach read though. Because you know, I was reading it because our students were going to read it, and I, we were on vacation in Florida, and I'm like sitting by the pool, and I'm just bawling. Yeah. She's like working with patients. My husband's like, "What? What are you? This vacation? What are you doing? Like this book, and then the patient." Mm -hmm. anyway, <laughs> so those kinds of books, you know, how doctors think. Jerome Group. I mean, there's lots of great stuff. Atul Gawand writes great stuff. So you can um, do your own learning and really be in charge of your own learning. And it is possible to shadow and learn absolutely nothing. Right. And not yes. really be present to the experience. And so it's not That's just right. what we hope you get from shadowing is understanding what you're getting into, getting insight around doctor patient relationships, the challenges that doctors face. And you can get that through other mechanisms, even in the time of COVID um, through other media forms. Now, is the pre-health shadowing that you're now on the board of, is that, is that virtual shadowing? It is virtual shadowing. Yeah. They record all the sessions, they have all on their website, and they, they try to encompass a broad scope of, of pre-health areas too. So it's helpful. So I guess you, since in-person shadowing is very difficult, if not impossible at the moment, you feel that virtual shadowing as as good a substitute as you're going to, to get at, that, at this point? I mean, you feel it's an acceptable form of clinical exposure? Yeah. I've always worked with students who couldn't access clinical exposure okay. because I work with a lot of Freeman first-gen students undocumented sure. students. So sometimes those students don't have the time for a while when some, some hospitals require um, social security card, you know, different types of onboarding processes for volunteers. And so I had undocumented students that weren't able, you know, to get clinical exposure in that way. And hospital shadowing has become much more restrictive because of risk management. So when I first started in med ed 20 years ago, we just call up our docs and say, oh yeah, can we send some high school students your way for the day? It was fine. Now they have to get all the immunizations and all the titers and do the same kind of medical clearances that our medical students have to do. And there's expense to that and a lot of red tape and delay for that. So it's not as simple as, as it once was anyway. So I again, I want to focus on the learning that, that shadowing is supposed to get. And you can get exposure to 
health professions, medicine, in these other means that, you know, and some people get it through taking care of someone in their own family, growing up with a person with a chronic illness or a sibling that has a, a, a disability. I mean, Again, what what kinds of insights have you have you gained from those experiences? I think it's helpful to be able to shadow and sort of get in there. But plenty of people have gotten into medical school not doing that. Um, and it's can they answer the questions, you know, around what a day in the life of a doctor is like, or what are the current challenges facing physicians, or you know, why is physician wellness such a thing these days? I mean, do you have insight into a profession that you're essentially asking to join? So I would I would really defer to the purpose of those activities rather than being there in person. A lot of people feel like, oh, I have to be a scribe, you know, and if I'm not a scribe, then I'm never going to get in. Um, But there are students who have scribed that are not good candidates, right? Because they're not paying attention. Or again, they're using a very checklist kind of mentality. Well, I've got my thousand hours, so I should be able to like, you know, submit this. And then Dean Nakai is going to just like push me right on through because I have all these hours. I mean, it's not that simple. Now, most of our discussion has revolved around applicants applying this summer or in the midst of the application process, right? Applying this summer to matriculate in 2022. What about applicants earlier in the process? Maybe planning to matriculate in 2023 or planning even for, you know, dreaming about becoming a doctor further into the future. What should applicants who are one or more years away from applying, not from matriculating, be doing? How should they be becoming the kind of person who can be a great physician? I've been listening to a lot of Brene Brown lately. Um, I love all things Brene Brown, super fan nerd. But I really think it's about growth and and vulnerability. And I I write about the growth zone in my book. And the growth zone is a place where you might fail, where you are deeply uncomfortable, where you're skilling up, as Brene would say, in areas that maybe you didn't know before. And so it's it's really honest self-appraisal of, gosh, you know, like I... I feel like some students will say, like, I know I'm socially awkward. And I'll say, and they might be a first year undergrad or second year undergrad. I say, okay, what do what what does the growth zone look like for someone who's socially awkward? What what can we what can we do? Well, I started volunteering at an intake center for temporary house at a temporary housing shelter. So I literally have to meet somebody new every 10 minutes. And I have to practice my skills, I have to shake their hand. They have very different life experiences than I do. I'm able to make a contribution to this community organization, but slowly I'm getting more comfortable with myself and I'm able to like learn how people are taking my cues and and really refine some of my interpersonal interactions and my body language. Awesome, right? Like, so, but I mean, sometimes it's like, we want to think about only putting forward our strengths and not thinking about where do we think our limitations are. For some students, it might be, I need to become a better student, not my grades, but actually how I study and how I learn because some, you know, we call it the crash and burn. Some students have, everything's been easy for them. They're perfect. Then they get into med school and it's really hard and they actually don't know how to study. So then they end up in the academic center of excellence or academic support center talking to our coaches who are like, oh, this is how you concept that. This is how you consolidate. This is interweaving. This is like, what are those different types of, of learning modalities that you need to be good at to do a really hard graduate program. So I like for students to take a little bit of an inventory of what their strengths are and continue to focus on those. But also I think, you know, especially early on, what are your limitations or what are the areas that you haven't explored yet that you really want an opportunity to explore and and stay open to what speaks to you, whether it's a different health professions area, whether it's something completely different. Um, And I have had students make really wonderful journeys into being health educators, nutritionists. I mean, you know, if you do it right, 
then you are open to ending up somewhere different than what you thought at the very beginning, right? The rigidity does not often serve us well or help us attend to and respond to where our strengths and gifts really are. I had a friend once whose daughter applied to a certain um, master's program and she was very unhappy in the program. And after a semester, she decided to drop out. Mm-hmm. And my friend and I and were very close. We, we walk every week, was disappointed in her daughter and thought she was, she was quitting. And I said, why should she perpetuate a mistake? She says, what do you mean? So I said, look, she's in this program. She doesn't feel it's right for her. Why should she pay the additional tuition of the next semester? And I think it was a two-year program and uh, proceed in a direction she does. She already knows is wrong. Let her stop, course correct, and pursue something else. Right. And you know, we talked for a few minutes more. And she said, you know, you're 100% right. I'm going to call her when we get home, when I get home, and I'm going to tell her she should do exactly what she's doing. And she, she has our complete support. Hmm. And my, my friend was willing to course correct. And you know, her daughter obviously had come to that conclusion and then went and you know, thought about it a little bit, went for a different degree and went for a different profession. Yeah. So um, that she was quite happy with the the idea of course correction uh, just means that you're a growing person, mm-hmm. and I'm sure all your students want to be growing people. They should Absolutely. at this age. I totally agree, and I think you know that includes our interpersonal learning um, around you know growing up differently. And I, I try to include because I worked with a lot of students in Utah who recognized that their upbringing was atypical in terms of their overall being sheltered, right? Like they'd grown up in this place that really sort of wasn't like the rest of the world or even the United States. And so their exploration really included, oh, what what kinds of things do I need to do to attend to that? And it's kind of the no better, you know, do better philosophy is, yeah, I need to learn a little bit more about the world beyond myself and continue to be a a learning person and and focus on that improvement and and responsiveness. But yes, pre-meds get pretty stuck in their plans and rigidity, especially around like, I'm going to apply in 2023 and then I'm, and I'm going to take the MCAT on this specific day. And, and then they're not ready to take the MCAT. And I go, well, so now you're coming to me. It's six months later. You're not happy with your MCAT score. Or what happened? Well, I knew I wasn't ready to take it, but I told myself I was going to take it in June. So I did it. And now we're here six months later. Like, wouldn't it have been better to just do one thing at a time and say, okay, my next focus is really improving my study skills and getting taking the MCAT. And once I'm sort of think I'm ready to do that, then I'm going to start planning the next phase. But people get so rigid into their timelines and even into their goals and forget the why of like, so why am I even doing this in the first place? And I've talked to pre-med students who are straight up miserable. And I'm like, so do you, so is this what, like, talk to me about, is this what you want to do? And it, things come out like, well, my parents have expectations or I've always told everyone, this is what I want to do, but now I'm not really sure. Or I've had some experiences where I felt really defeated. I'm having a hard time seeing myself in this career area anymore. So I think, you know, having space to, to question and continue to revisit uh, is really important. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Barry Rothman, who's the former head of post-bac programs at Cal State San Francisco and is now a a consultant at Accepted, says many times, the fastest way to medical school frequently is very slowly. Yeah, that's a really great quote. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. because it's not about how fast you get there, right? It's really about being happy with where you are. And the worst day of medical school is, is day two, right? The first day is like, oh my gosh, you know, you get your acceptance. It's amazing. Like this is a goal you've been striving for for so long. And then there's this dread that sets in of like, now I really have to do it. Right? Like, now the work starts and there's this, it is a big letdown. Like you see a noticeable diminishing of enthusiasm in the class as the first semester gets underway. And people really are like, 
I have a lot less free time. Like I like, there's a bunch of realities that sort of set in of like, oh, but this is what I wanted. And so I encourage my first years to think about, you know, something that that is a psychological technique is to think about the counterfactual. How might you not have ended up here, right? Which might make you appreciate um, the, the space where you are and think about where you wanted to be two years ago. Like how bad you wanted to be in this seat, in this classroom right now, doing anatomy, doing histology, like grinding it out in pharmacology. Like you, this is really what you wanted. And then the, the greater purpose of it, right? Which is to be there for a patient, which is sometimes hard to remember when you grind of, of those basic science years in medical school. Great insight. Well, I want to thank you again, Dr. Nakai. I think we're almost out of time. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your expertise and time. This has been absolutely wonderful. Where can listeners learn more about CUSM? Um, CUSM.org is our main website. And so we're happy to, and just, you know, once we receive our um, accreditation from the Western undergraduate universities one, then we'll get an EDU address. But because we're a nonprofit and, you know, not-for-profit medical school at the moment, we have a .org address. So that's probably why it sounds a little funny at the moment, but CUSM.org. And then we're also on Twitter. Okay. And and you can find my book on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, or from Rutgers directly. Okay, great. Thank you again, Dr. Nakai. We're going to include links in the show notes at accept.com slash 420 to CUSM's website, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to you listeners. Included among those resources are Dr. Nakai's book, Pre-Med Prep, which is really outstanding. Those of you who listen to the show regularly know I don't normally praise books in that language, but I'm going to do it this time very sincerely. There is gem after gem of insight and very practical hands-on advice in it. And no, Dr. Nakai doesn't pay me to say this. There's no advertising here. This is Admission Straight Talk, produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.